follow the Apostle Paul's example of what he wrote to the Corinthian church when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 3, I passed on to you what was most important. If, if the Apostle Paul says this is most important, then I go, wow, that's probably pretty important. And he said, here's what it is. Christ died for our sins. We believe a lot of different things. And even if it's your first time here, you might not agree with everything or, oh, I don't do that or I don't believe that. But no doubt you believe in a lot of things. We all believe in a lot of things. But none of that really matters if Jesus Christ doesn't die on the cross. The whole Bible points to this Savior. And that's why Paul says early, he says, 1 Corinthians 2, 1, he says, I determined that not to know anything among you. In verse 2, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Nothing else matters more than the fact our God took on flesh, dwelt among us, died on a cross, was buried in a grave, and then rose again. Every other thing written on the thousand plus pages of the Bible revolves around that. Last week, we started the series by looking at three things in the words of the cross that Jesus spoke. Today, we're simply looking at one. And it's found in Luke 23, 39. It says, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed and said, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. Kind of like when you have a little sibling, you know, I hear my kids sometimes like, oh, I bet you you can't do this when really you're just trying to get the person to do it. And sometimes it's going to get their siblings in trouble. But the other criminal protests and said, don't you fear God when you've been, even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our sins, our, our crimes. This guy didn't do anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. So our last week of our words of the cross series. Lord Jesus, as we just end this service today with just a word from Scripture, Lord, I pray that you would anoint me, that you would anoint eyes and ears to receive, Lord, the, the words that you're going to speak through me. I believe it in faith, Lord God. Lord, let it be anointed. Lord, your word doesn't need help, but I do. And so in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can you imagine the gall of this criminal? He's sentenced to death. He's a Terrible man, lived a life of sin, a life of crime. Unlike Jesus, this guy's definitely guilty. So it seems crazy to me that on, as he's hanging on the cross, to, next to a man who is a bloodied savior, hanging there in incredible pain, that he's going to bother him by saying, hey, I know I've lived a life of crime, terrible choices, but could you do me a favor? What's crazier than he would, the fact that he would ask, though, is that Jesus would even respond, that he would even entertain the notion to forgive this guy. How could Jesus possibly show any type of interest in a totally worthless criminal? Well, I think the answer to that question is probably found in how we define worth. For that thief on the cross that day, he started thinking about eternity. His mind, it was on the afterlife. And it, and it often was in Scripture. We read in Corinthians, Paul deals with the afterlife. And he talks about it because people had questions just as they do today. 
And so, was he just now thinking about it for the first time? Had he thought about it before? We don't know. Scripture doesn't say. But in our present day, we are seeing some of the results of what happens when eternity takes a back seat to the present. What happens when we lose sight of what's next and we only get consumed with what is here today? Some believe that hu the human race is, is, is headed nowhere. You know, atheists believe that there's a, a big bang and that we exist and then you die and that's it. And that's, that's all out. That's all that humanity has. Creation was incidental. Humanity has no direction. The, the earth is spinning uh, purposeless. It's a sphere just spinning and spinning. No creation, no eternity, no God. And it's not even being introduced as a theory, right? It's, now it's just, it's just altogether not taught and discussed creation. We, we, don't even, we don't even teach it. We don't talk about it. Even in our, in our school system. You know, we had a school system that was founded on biblical principles. Then slowly we started to take Bible out of schools. But it was still kind of, hey, this is a theory. This is something that some people believe. Now it's not even being presented as a theory. It's just not touched on, talked about, discussed. Well, what happens when humanity has no destiny, no eternal future? Well, then we don't have any duty because if we don't have any destiny, there's no duty for that destiny. There's no moral code by which to live. Therefore, what is right and what is wrong can now be up for negotiation. So you are a person. You can choose what's right and wrong. I'm a person, and I'll choose what's right and wrong. But there's no absolute truth that can dictate what's right and wrong because we all make our own choices. That's the society that we're living in. Because essentially we have eliminated the source of absolute truth. So now who's to say a husband can't leave his wife because a younger, thinner version of a woman comes along? Who's to say a woman can't leave her husband because there's a guy who comes along that just pays her attention, listens better, shows her more love? Who's to say there should be a marriage covenant prior to physical intimacy? Who's, who says that, uh, that you can't abort an unborn child? Who's to say that God created two genders and we should remain in the gender that God created us? Who's to say? It's your value system against mine. No absolutes, no principles, no ethics, no standard. And that's really where our world is at. And if you reference the word of God, you believe in that ancient book somebody else wrote. that we don't even, That's not even a real book. That's just someone's opinion. This is, what's, this is what has, is happening in our world. And if humanity has no duty or destiny, then the next logical step is if we don't have any eternal value or any destiny, then we don't have value. It's just here, we're here, we live our life, we die, and that's it. Because there's nothing beyond this. And again, we're seeing the result of this mindset. Crazy arguments used to take place about what is right and what is wrong. But now, people are almost just ceasing to argue. It's just live and let live. You make choices, I make choices, and we just live and let live. And our country is creating false value systems because there's no absolute guide for measuring what is right, is wrong, right, what is right and wrong. So now... If in, in this present society, in this mindset, you are only valuable if you are pretty, if you're strong, if you can shoot a basketball, hit a baseball, or throw a football. You get good grades. You have an MD behind your name. You drive a sports car, build a big house, wear name brand clothes, or retire with more than your neighbor. 
now you're valuable. Values measured in our world really on two major criteria. Number one, appearance. Number two, performance. Value is based on appearance and performance. But what happens to the large segment of society that doesn't excel in one of those categories? Well, I'm not much to look at, and I'm sure not performing well these days. Like, oh, then you're not, then you don't have value. That's a pretty tough system. Where does that leave people? But this system is not God's plan. It has never been God's plan. But that's why the culture, you will often find segments of culture, the, the Bible is countercultural. And so, it's not God's plan. In the book, there is still absolute truth. The Bible states humanity is heading somewhere, and godly principles should still govern our lives. And so we're being prepared to walk down the aisle and be the forever bride of Christ. We're going to rule with him forever, reign with him forever. We count. We are valuable. I was just able to be at a board of directors meetings this past week in St. Louis. And a Christian prisoner ministry director got up and told the story about a man that they ministered to in a prison. And he had a tattoo across his forehead that said, loser. And the man walked up and they said, hey, we're having a service here today in the prison. You should come to it. And he said, man, I want you, your service, your God. I want nothing to do with it. And he said, you see this? That's loser. My dad every day growing up called me a loser. And so I put a tattoo on my forehead so every time I looked in the mirror, I wouldn't forget the fact that I'm nothing, I'm a nobody. He said, that's why since I was 12 years old, I was in and out of juvenile detention centers, and I've pretty much been in prison my whole life. Because from the earliest age on, no one saw value in me. I'm thankful that that chill, that, that Christian prisoner ministry director looked at that person and continued to talk to them and had a conversation with them because, you know what? How many of us would walk up to the person with loser tattooed on their forehead and say, they're a lost cause, they're in prison, they've made poor choices, there ain't no hope for them. I pray to God that if somebody comes in with a loser tattoo on their forehead, that every single one of us, them and anybody else, will walk in. Hey, how's it going? What's your name? Nice to meet you. Just like you see a homeless person on the side of the street, instead of just... Just, oh, another person, another lost cause. I wonder how many homeless people get asked their name. Hi, how are you doing today? What's your name? I'm not saying you have to give every person that, asking for something, something. But what about just a conversation? What's your name? I'm thankful that they saw value in this man in prison. I'm thankful that all across America we have people who see value even in people who are serving time in prison 
and that hundreds and hundreds of people are getting the Holy Ghost and being filled with his spirit and baptized in his name in prisons across America every single week. And this man who had loser tattooed on his head went to a service and he repented of his sins, was baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit of God. You see... Many wouldn't see value in him or even in this prisoner hanging next to Jesus. But Jesus saw value and he saw value from the moment we were conceived. Our values built in, it's inborn in us. Look what Jesus, look what God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5. He says, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. Even before, every single one of us have intrinsic value just because of, of being conceived. Even before we were conceived, God knew us and had a plan for us. Psalm 139, he says, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body, knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how well I know it. You watched over me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, and I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born, God. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. That's the God that we serve who looks at us and forms us and knows us. There's value there, and that's why I'll tell you, that's why I can't myself and I'm, I don't speak politics in the in the in the pulpit but that's why for me personally I can never vote on a human being who openly says I stand for abortion because everything in scripture says what God he forms us in our womb from the moment conception takes place God sees the value of every person in the womb. This is why I can never align with someone who believes elsewhere or other than that, however I want to say that. <laughs> Jesus sees value in every person simply because you're a person. That's why Jesus treated people like he did. The untouchable leopard who asked for cleansing. Oh no, hey, you need to go over there. You need to segregate. You need to go in a different part of the, of, the, of the town. You need to be away from everybody else because you're unclean. Nobody can touch you because guess what? If you touched a leper in that day, you now had to join them in a leper's colony because you're now unclean. Jesus says, no, no, watch this. You guys think when the clean touches the unclean, the clean gets unclean. Watch me. I'm clean. Watch me touch the unclean, and the unclean actually becomes clean. And so he does that. Then the blind man who cluttered the roadside, and he was just a nuisance. Read about it. Alms, alms. I mean, ignore that guy. He's a blind dude just sitting on the side of the road. He ain't worth nothing. Just leave him sit there. He's just a nuisance in the town. He cries out for money every day. Just leave him alone. Jesus stops and says, whoa, you're blind? How about Peter and John? They stop and say, silver and gold, have I none? They, they stopped. For the people that everyone else thought was a nuisance. No, you're a leper, I'll touch you. You're blind, I'll heal you. The worn out man addicted to self-pity at the pool of Siloam. Jesus stops and what does he do? He heals that man. Even the children. Oh man, children are just a nuisance, they say. Jesus is teaching. This is just for adults here. Get the kids out of here. Jesus says, no, no, no. 
Slow down. Where are the kids at? Bring them over here to me. Matter of fact, you guys think you're so smart and, 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 and intellectual. I want you to know that unless you become like them, you can't even get to my kingdom. And he says, if you offend one of these little ones, you might as well throw a millstone around your neck and jump into the bottom of the sea. Because, you know, these kids mean something to me. We can learn so much about the stops of Jesus. He addressed situations no one else wanted to address. He touched people nobody wanted to touch. He stopped for people that other people deemed worthless. And he loved the kids that everyone else called a distraction. So why would this criminal be any different? Maybe this criminal had heard of Jesus before. Maybe he didn't. But I'm guessing he did based on the fact that he's like, hey, he's not guilty. We are. And he, there was an understanding there. I wonder, had he ever heard Jesus speak? Did he just hear the news about who Jesus spoke to? Did he hear about the miracles? Or did he just hang next to him and feel something that he had never felt before? Because I'll tell you this, people can sense when you have hope for them. The man that's spending, that's a Convicted person, lawbreaker in the, in, the, in the prison system that has loser tattooed on his forehead. He felt what people really think about him. But then he had a conversation with someone who had hope for him. People can sense when you have hope for them. And they also can sense when you believe that they're too far gone. This criminal on the verge of death on that cross looked over at a beaten, slashed, ridiculed, nail-suspended preacher named Jesus. His face was covered in blood, bones pushing against his flesh, skin hanging off his back, pushing himself up, gasping for air. But something told this criminal that he had never been in better company in his life. One soldier later felt the same way. Truly, this was the Son of God. And for maybe the first time in his life, this criminal began to pray. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. Why would he do this? Why did he even respond to a lifelong criminal. What did Jesus have to gain by doing this? Because, I mean, I get it. You know, the woman at the well, you know, you, you, you meet her need, and she goes to the village and gets all her friends, and boom, growth happens. I get it. You know, I understand that Zacchaeus, you know, he could come in, he's got some money that he can give to the cause. The kids, they could grow up and remember that experience with Jesus and, and maybe be world changers later. That all makes sense. I get it. But what do you get out of a thief dying on the cross who's been a lifelong criminal? What could he do for Jesus? Nothing. Not one single thing. Nothing at all. He's going to do nothing for Jesus. But wasn't that the point? Jesus' love does not depend on what we can do for him. 
You know, people, I deal with that all the time. I just, I need to work harder. I know if I'm going to, God, he's done so much for me. I got to, I got to do more. I appreciate, I think we should have a mindset to ministry, and I think we are saved to serve. I think that, that that's important. But if you think that you need to work harder because he did something for you to earn his approval, like, his love is not based on your performance. He demands obedience, and he lays out his plan for us. But God does not say, my love is based on how you perform. You have value simply because of who you are, because you exist. You don't have to look nice. You don't have to go to the doctor and have them say, hey, you're in the range of weight that I want you to be in. That doesn't like make God go, oh, yes, now I love my child because they take care of their physical body. Oh, I love my child because I love him more than her because he serves in three ministries and she serves in two. Your value in God was determined the minute you were conceived in your mother's womb. You're valuable simply because you exist, not because of what you've done, not because of what you bring to the table, simply because you exist. And so he was willing to hear the prayer of a convict as he faced death. And he's willing to hear our prayer here this morning. No matter where you are, what you've done, how far you've fallen, if this is your first or 500th time in church, no matter what your experience is, oh, but you don't understand, oh, you don't know my story, you're probably right. But notice that Jesus does not look at the convicted felon hanging on the cross going, well, we have to talk about this. What exactly have you done? What's your plan for the future? Well, what do you intend to do for me? He just says, hey, you've cried out to me just like so many people have cried out to me before. And when you cry out to me, I respond. Why? Because I see you as valuable. Just like man or woman, adult, child, rich, poor, tall, short, healthy, maimed, single, married, old, young, law-abiding, or convict, God will respond to your prayer. I love the fact that someday I'm going to be walking the streets of gold in heaven. And I'm going to walk up to two convicts, one that hung on a cross next to Jesus, who cried out at the very waning moments of his life. And I'll walk over to another guy, and I wonder, will he still have the loser tattoo on his forehead? I mean, does God, like, because the Bible says we're going to have resurrected bodies. We're going to have glorified bodies. What does that body look like? Do we have the same type of look? Is it different? Like, do we still kind of have human form? Do you know what the answer to that is? I can't wait to find out either. But does Jesus leave that on there just to be like, oh, that's what everybody defined him at his whole life? But I just left it on there to show what a great party he got invited to. Or does it change to winner? 
But just to walk up and say, hey, man, what's your story? Oh, bro, let me tell you, and two convicted felons will be able to tell me more about grace than thousands of theologians. <laughs> because they'll say, if anybody doesn't deserve to be here, it's me. My dad's going to be one of those people that are going to be walking around saying, oh, let me tell you about my whole life. Man, drugs and alcohol and in and out of getting arrested and oh, just, oh, but, but God had grace upon a rotten sinner who had just let him down over and over again, who let his family down, his kids down, his community down. But God stepped in and offered grace simply because he saw me as valuable. Oh, is there anybody here that can raise a hand or clap a hand and say, that's my story, that's my testimony. Ah, he found grace, I found grace. I didn't deserve and I still don't, but he saw value in me. Oh, this is the grace and love that we learn from the words of the cross. And this is why as my wife comes that, to play that on a service like today, we make it a point to end the service by celebrating and remembering the cross. You see, the Gospel of John is the last of the four Gospels written. He kind of got a... a uh, you get to one-up some of the other gospel writers, you know, because the other gospel writers are writing. John writes his last from the perspective of looking backward and being like, oh, I see what he was saying there. And so he can point out some things, and there's also a reason why John is the clearest writing about the oneness of God, how Jesus Christ was not a triune, co-equal, co-eternal God, but Jesus Christ was God manifest in flesh, and he writes those words of revelation more than the other gospel writers. But he looks back, and he writes about something that the Jewish high priest Caiaphas said, but John sees it as a, as a fulfillment of a prophetic word. Read this with me, John eleven forty five. 45. It says, many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. But some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the leading priests and Pharisees called the high council together and they said, what are we going to do? They asked the, uh, 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 one another. They said, this man certainly performs many miraculous signs. If we allow him to go on like this, soon everyone's going to believe in him. And I pause right there, and I did this last night, not my notes, but I want you to think for yourself. If you continue to go on like this, meaning like you're going right now, if you keep talking to the same amount of people, sharing your same testimony as often as you do, inviting the same amount of people to small groups of Bible studies in church, continuing ministering just like you're ministering, carrying the burden just like you're carrying it, just like you are. How many people are going to know Jesus Christ if you continue doing what you're doing right now? How many disciples are going to be made if you continue doing what you're doing right now? 
quite the thought. For Jesus, they said, if we leave and go, I'm telling you what, everyone is going to believe in him. And so they said, then if that happens, the Roman army is going to come and destroy our temple and destroy our nation. That's going to be it. And Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, you don't realize it's better for you that one should die for the people than for the whole nation to be destroyed. Leave that up there. Caiaphas was speaking in the context of Rome. Hey, I don't want Rome to destroy us. I, we're, we're thinking about our beautiful temple that Solomon built. And we're thinking about, you know, protecting that and protecting our nation in the midst of Roman rule. And so that's what he was thinking about. And so he's like, no, this guy's causing problems. If we kill him, at least we all can live. So Rome doesn't mess with us. But look what John says in the next verse. John says, he did not say this on his own as a high priest. That was, was, he, was, he was being led to prophesy. He said that Jesus would die for an entire nation. See, Caiaphas was speaking about Rome, and we got to kill this guy so we don't get destroyed. But what John looks back and sees is, wow. He was prophetically speaking about where we are today. And for them, that because one man named Jesus Christ became the Savior of the world, entire nations in the whole earth would not have to pay their own price for their sins. John said he thought he was speaking about one thing, but I'll tell you, he was prophesying about what was getting ready to happen, that Jesus Christ, as one man, was going to die on a cross, and he was going to pay a price so that an entire nation would not have to pay their own price. And that is what we remember when we take communion. We're remembering this very fact that God came and took on flesh just so he could have a body that was broken for us and blood that was shed for us. Would you stand to your feet, please? And I'm going to invite you and to come and as many people can gather around. If you need to go back to your seat, that's fine. We probably don't have enough space for everybody. But as soon as we take communion, we're going to have just a, we're going to close this service with prayer. Just so you know, when you get these, you will peel these back. Kind of two layers. There's one that you pull the tab and the juice will be exposed. You pull the other little thinner tab and you'll expose this terrible tasting piece of bread. Unleavened. But I ask that when you do that, you don't take communion yet. Just hold on because I'm going to give you some instruction. We're going to take it together. And we're going to have a time of prayer. But if you could, this section starting here, you'll just come and then just move over there. This section, just come from this basket and move over there. And begin to help yourself while they sing and play. And then we'll take communion together.
Has everyone been served who wants to partake in communion? Just be careful. want to try and keep the grape juice off the light carpet. Everyone's been served who desires to be served. Before we take this, I just want to close with a powerful story about the intense love of a parent. Anyone heard of Dr. Meg Meeker? All right, only a couple. You have to, you have to, if you're a parent, she has a book about boys. It's called Boys Should Be Boys. And she has a book about girls called Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters. She's a doctor who's also been counseling for decades. She's an incredible author. I suggest those books. And she writes in her book, she says, I will never forget a particular 11-year-old boy I cared for who had cystic fibrosis. His lungs would fill with mucus so thick that he had difficulty breathing. We gave him medicines and therapies to try to remove this thick mucus before it turned to concrete. Very often the mucus would become infected with various bacteria which would then lead to pneumonia. If that happened, we would pump IV antibiotics into him. Over time, the bacteria would outsmart the antibiotics, so we would give him stronger ones. Sometimes these antibiotics worked and sometimes they didn't. Many times, this young boy would be in the hospital for a few weeks at a time. He would return home for a few weeks and then come back in for his medication. His mother sat in his room for endless hours. She read to him. She listened. Sometimes in frustration, I heard him scream at her. She just would listen. He needed someone, the safest one he could find to blame for his pain. He was 11. She didn't cry, he cried. She didn't return his ranking, she sat quietly. One day she asked me if she and her husband could meet with me in private. She wouldn't tell me what it was about, only that it was extremely important. We agreed, we set a time to meet. Did she mind started wondering, did she want him to die? Was she sick of the journey? Did she want me to give him an overdose of pain medication to end it all for him? She said, I was ashamed to, to think such thoughts, but they were there. When we convened, the three of us sat around an oval table, and I knew we're all busy, she said, so I'm not going to cut to the chase. She said, you've seen my son suffer for a number of years now. You understand his dire circumstances. And you understand that this particular prognosis is poor. I waited. I wondered what's coming next. She said, I was prepared to say, no, absolutely not. Under no circumstance will I end his life with medicine. Her words interrupted my shameful thoughts. And she said, my husband and I have thought things over. We've discussed our situation and death, and we've come to an agreement. We want you to comply with our wishes. She didn't leave any room for disagreement. She said, I would like to donate my lungs to my son. Dr. Meeker said, I stared at her face. She looked me right in the eye. She says, I was frozen in my chair. 
I was dumbfounded. I couldn't agree to her request. I said, there's no way. And the mother just cried and cried and then pleaded and cried. And she said, at first I thought she was crazy. She said, but then I realized that day that I was looking right into the eyes of the intense love of a parent. And today, I just can't help but think about the spiritual application. As sons and daughters of God, he did just that. Our prognosis was poor. There was no hope. And God said, I'm going to take on flesh because when I speak, my word cannot be changed. My word stands forever. And so I said, the wages of sin are death and they will be death. But instead of you dying the death, I'm going to go ahead and do it. And that is what we remember as we take communion this morning. And the Bible says that the aid of the bread to remember the body that was broken for them. And they did it. took the fruit of the vine to remember the blood that was shed on that cross for them. And so they drank. I think we can find a place to pray right now. The service is concluded, but I sure don't hope our response is, our response is not concluded. Let's find a place to remember the fact that he looked at us and said, no, no, I'm going to pay their price. I see value in them because of who they are. When no one else saw value, our God saw enough value to take on flesh and pay a price that only he could pay. Thank you, Jesus.